If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, welcome to the latest edition of the Just Not Sports Podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like, just not sports. On today's show, we'll talk to Esquire writer and Boston culture expert Luke O'Neill about his love of emo music. And with the NBA lottery happening this week, Gareth and I will explore the greatest NBA conspiracy theories and ask each other, do you believe? I'm your co-host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago, and I'm not in Chicago this week. I'm in a hotel room in New York City, in our New York bureau, with the one and only seven-time sports Emmy-winning journalist, creator, producer, Gareth Hughes. Gareth. A home game. <laughs> yeah. Home game. <laughs> home game indeed. Not with us this week. Adam Millard, our I, I have fresh so face. Yeah, fresh faced. Uh Colorado Buffaloes, Packers, something or other, somebody. And also Joe Reed missing week nine. <laughs> Joe, I think I saw your face on a missing poster in the new it trailer. <laughs> Please come back to society. <laughs> Joe, do they all float down there? Yeah. Do they? <laughs> <laughs> do they all float? They do. First of all, Gareth, quick moment in this room. There's a painting above the beds in my uh, in my hotel room. On the right side is what looks to be a man with a hidden penis. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's kind of got <laughs> a uh, 70s... Colorfield vibe going to it. Helen Frankenthaler kind of stuff on the side. A little Morris Lewis maybe. And then over on the right gets a little more figurative. A <laughs> little more figurative. I also want to point out the professionalism of the Just Not Sports podcast as Gareth is chewing a toothpick while talking into a microphone. <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> and just got super self-conscious about it. All right. Wait, does the chewing bother you? I mean... I, no. Toothpicks okay? Uh, no, I'm not listening to the podcast, so it doesn't bother me <laughs> at all. Uh, but viewer or listeners, viewers, whatever, listeners, uh, sparkle bonies, we are sorry. Uh, before we get into wide open, we both were at award shows tonight. Yeah, I want to give a shout out to Digiday for hooking us up with what is a neon glowing award statue, a one-of-a-kind, very cool. We won an award there for our More Than Mean project. Gareth, you were at a slightly higher-profile award show, the Sports Emmys. Please tell me, I saw on Instagram and Twitter you sat near A-Rod. Does he smell like a mix of lilac and sadness? (laughs) He's got, no, man, he's got that whole... You know, uh, half man, half horse vibe to him. Like he's like <laughs> he's like the living embodiment of the Old Spice commercials. Is that a mastodon? I don't remember. What what is the half horse at? Yeah, I forget as well. Pegasus. Uh, Pegasus might. That's a good guy. I, I think it might be. No, Pegasus was, was just the, the winged horse. horse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All uh, right. You know, yeah. <laughs> Whatever. I'll dig up. I'll dig up Harry Potter in a few weeks, <laughs> and we'll figure it out. Uh. Any memorable moments from well, the so sports? That games? was what I wanted to discuss in Wide Open is to give a little sports Emmy breakdown. Oh, well, then, you know what? Let's just get into the segment. I mean, Gareth's serious because he just took a sip of seltzer and put the uh, uh, toothpick, toothpick down, down. temporarily. Uh, <laughs> his hand is literally hovering over the toothpick. He wants it back so bad. <laughs> All right, so on this show, we don't just do an open. We go wide open. Anything, everything around sports that's not sports is on the table. Gareth, sports, Emmys, hit us with the dirt. 
Uh, yeah, tonight was the 38th Sports Emmys at Jazz at Lincoln Center. Who hooked up? Uh, didn't see anyone. <laughs> Good question. I mean, I'm going right to it, bro. Yeah. Um, congratulations to all the winners. Thank you to the Sports Emmys for putting on a great show as always. Uh, my highlight, so it starts with a two-hour cocktail event, and that's the highlight of the night. That's the big schmooze. And my highlight was I went and talked to Willie McGinnis. I had heard this story about him years ago. My wife used to work on Antiques Roadshow. And they're doing a roadshow event in LA and they're all flying back to Boston. Willie McGinnis happened to be going from, this was a few years ago, it was after he had retired. McGinnis is sitting in first class flying back to Boston for a Patriots event. And the roadshow staff gets on it and there's this woman on the crew. She's really tall, like over six feet. She happens to stand next to Willie McGinnis. She's a Pats fan. She knows who she he is. And she's like, oh my God, that's Willie McGinnis. And he just looks her up and down and just looks at her and goes, high jump? It turns out she had been a state champion high jumper. Whoa. <laughs> and he just spotted it. She goes, yep, and just walked out down the aisle. So I went and told Willie that story tonight. I uh, had a couple laughs about that. It's one of my favorite of those sort of athlete interactions where just sort of game recognized game. Uh, talked to the guys from NFL Films. Shout out to Paul Camerata. Went inside, sat near A-Rod, uh, Katie Nolan, the entire Fox section. They had a good night. Um, let's see Brent Musburger okay this was a funny story and I'm going to share it uh, it's his story obviously but first of all you open the show with the tagline talk about anything they want just not sports right right what was Brent Musburger's big tagline you are looking live that is it and they talked about it a lot in this piece and he talked about the origin of that and it just shows that Brent Musburger like he really is who he is so he's doing the NFL today and this director says to him, they're talking about how to do the show. And the director says to him, my friends, keep in mind, this is a studio show. Right. He goes, my friend's a big gambler and he's always worried about the weather. And so Musburger was like, so when you cut to the games during the studio, I'll just say, you are looking live. There's no better weather report than that. <laughs> and right. people will know the weather in the 12 o'clock hour before they place their final bets. Weird. <laughs> I mean, but that's who he is, right? He's also big in gambling, right? Yeah, that's I mean, the he thing. Does like the whole gambling thing now. But I think it's been a part of his experience doing sports. I mean, that's a that tagline came from gambling. It's it's probably the second most gambling friendly <laughs> tagline behind "Hello Friends." I, look, I think what's funny about those dudes like Musburger, Vern, um, Dick Enberg. They kind of made up sports TV. Yes. Right? I mean, like yeah, yeah. little things like that. Like, I'm going to say you're looking live, and we just think, oh, that's a tagline. But at the time, like, a live shot in 1968 or 74 was a big deal. It was right, like right. you were watching a daytime soap, and now it's 2 p.m., and the NBA finals are happening because it's not in prime time yet. I mean, mm -hmm. it, I think that's funny, and I think that's interesting that as that generation is cycling out of the business – slowly because a lot of them are still it's around. a young business though is what you yeah, said or it's right. a young medium and i i think that you bring up a good point they reference tonight like the guys in that room were working with the dudes who invented instant replay in 1963 right. you know they're the first people that put cameras on sidelines the first people that did wired up. guys yeah, exactly. the fox box the first downline like all that stuff the is glowing puck. <laughs> right the best story i heard about that was from an old producer uh bob stenner 
who we were watching a game one night, and he produced Madden for years. I mean, he was the producer with John Madden. And we're watching a game. I did his last year with his uh, legendary directing partner, Sandy Grossman. The last year they were together, I was their stats guy, like really low-level guy. Um, but we're watching a game one Saturday, and it's a college football game. And he's looking at the field, and he goes, oh, you see those arrows pointing in the end zone? We're all like, yeah. He goes, those were my idea. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> he was like, because we were broadcasting all these games, yeah. and there were no arrows. You couldn't, the viewer couldn't tell where it was going. So he went and got those put on field. I mean, you think about that, like, and we have a whole generation now that don't remember the yellow line, like not being there, right? You know, right. like I mean, it's just you can't go back. As sports has changed, uh, it's become crazy, and I do think that I do think we should, as 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 younger members of the sporting community, we should have an appreciation for. Not just these guys for being around for forty years, but how they created a template that we became familiar with and that enabled us to watch the game. Yeah, it's how we think of sports now. Yeah, it's, it's so it is sports. <laughs> it's know. the way that like later generations will remember like NBA gifts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Of like Kevin Durant saying "fuck off" to a mascot, right? Like, right. Man, Shea Serrano invented that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was le- it was a new step forward for the medium. Shea Serrano, friend of Pod, by the way. Well, so uh, on that note, a good transition. I want to give a shout out to a few friends of Pod. Uh, congratulations to all the winners, but congratulations to uh, Aaron Cohen for the Dick Shap Writing Award. Not exactly friend of Pod, but friend of mine. Uh, Jensen Carp, friend of Pod, was nominated yeah. uh, for musical direction for his Jimmy Garoppolo uh, piece on Fox last year. I loved that. Yep. Uh, Gabe Spitzer, friend of Pod, won for tech, uh, a new digital achievement for a VR documentary he did on last year's NBA Finals. And Anthony Cortese, or Cortez as he's called, who has edited the pod a few times, a very good friend of mine. Uh, and close collaborator. I think he's actually listened to every episode of this podcast, too. Nice. Edited our Judy Batista. Exactly. He won for best short form editing. I'm very proud of him. Congratulations, Anthony. You've all seen his work. I can guarantee you that. Congratulations. And um, it's a good transition into a conversation about another enduring um, sports figure who has changed entertainment. I speak, of course, of Lonzo Ball. <laughs> Uh, Gareth, let's get into this. Uh, Lonzo Ball, America's first son, not named Trump, is <laughs> now a rapper, too. Right. And that's kind of in our wheelhouse. So let's get into it. I want to start with this. A lot's been made about uh, LeVar Ball, his dad, and whether, you know, he's... The original big baller? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, he's made some... To call it polarizing would be an understatement. I I mean, he just released $500 shoes that the <laughs> world knew had been rejected by all the major sneaker companies. And $230 slip-ons. He's also featured prominently in first take advertising, which tells me you've done something wrong. <laughs> um, but I, I just I want to know, like, where do you fall on the ball family right now and uh you know what and gareth uh, appropriately enough that might be a great question for you in general <laughs> <laughs> harken back to our listeners yeah that's a good in joke uh yeah Oof. i was uh, i is lonzo ball 
the perfect manifestation of the sports media complex. You know, is it a guy yes. who watched all the first takes? Perfect with a capital P and then a Stephen A. Rant follow-up to finish that word. It's amazing. Look, I'm going to okay, I'm gonna cut you off. This is really about my take on Lonzo Ball and LeVar. I'm just trying to throw it in the air. LeVar Ball has figured it out. The, the key is you don't want to live vicariously through your son as a sports hero. You want to live vicariously through your son as a real-life uh, marketing genius who gets all the credit for your son's accomplishments. I think his – look, when he got rejected by all the major sneaker brands and he priced his shoes at $500 and his flip-flops at $200. Uh, quick note, my wife bought me flip-flops for our vacation next week. They were $0.98. Cents. <laughs> pretty sure they work functionally as good as the big baller brand but i will say i think his strategy of look i've got rejected out of the regular sneaker market i'm going to go into a premium sneaker market strategically makes a ton of sense the same (laughs) way if we said hey we should make our no podcast is nine hours long we should do that every week (laughs) it's not i'm not saying it's going to work corner a limited market i get the thinking (laughs) Now, as for everything else that he's done, questionable. I would say I'm really hoping – my ambition for Lonzo is this. I want Lonzo to live out my all-time dream, <laughs> which is a professional athlete being completely famous but never actually suiting up in the pros. <laughs> so, like <laughs> – if Lon- like this would be the equivalent of how Jim Rome show says like he's always rooting for the 0 and 16 season. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or people go to a game hoping they see a perfect game. If Lonzo Ball could never <laughs> suit up in the pros, but have like all the fame of a famous athlete, that would be the ultimate just not sports icon for me. <laughs> and I think it's on the table. I honestly feel like look. The top pick in the last year's draft didn't even play. Right, like, right, right, right. Like, this is on the table. You get people. traded once or twice, and you're in. You're just yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, like this could be. This but he'd have the nickname. Special. <laughs> yeah, he's already got it. No, he's got he's got uh, ZO two. Yeah, yeah, and the brand and the whole th- like. Wait, what do you think about? <laughs> excuse me. What do you think about ZO two? Um. Well, it's in reference. It's it's got his dad involved, so yeah. I mean, it's a CO two reference, right? Uh, is I mean, is that I, I'm asking? <laughs> I guess close enough. Like it sounds familiar. Like it's a CO two reference. Look, like there's wor- there's a lot worse nicknames in the world. Do you think that it's a subtle tweak on the anti global warming trend? I don't know that that's foremost on his agenda, <laughs> but when he chooses to expand into a foundation, maybe global warming will be what ZO2 chooses to tackle. What do you think of his rap? Because, Gareth, I would say you you are rivaling Adam as the hip-hop connoisseur of this podcast. What did you think of Lonzo's rap? I was, I was kind of shocked at the profanity. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was shocked you listened to it, so we're <laughs> yeah. equal there. Uh it, it was average athlete rap, um, but I don't know. He was clearly – look, I just – I was surprised by how aggressive it was. Like, I felt like after Allen Iverson said, I regret Jules, you weren't going to see as many hard NBA rappers come out like that. 
Look, we're in a post-Deadpool world, and the hard <laughs> R is in, bro. I, I saw Logan, man. That movie was great. Hard R, baby. I have not seen a movie in <laughs> seven months. Uh, I would I would say I didn't like the song, but I thought he was I thought he was great. Like meaning, <laughs> you know, like he did well. And I saw some really interesting breakdowns of his rap, mm-hmm. which I I saw probably more legitimate breakdowns of the Lonzo Ball verse than like Damian Lillard's full serious album, which tells me as a PR guy, doing something right. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> That's an interesting point. <laughs> I mean, look, I I gotta say, he's got a chance to do to run the perfect game. Lonzo, tweak an ankle, uh, you know. Get a staff infection, right? <laughs> and then next year, get a movie done with like. I mean, J Lo is on the table. She's doing an NBC show. You don't tell me, Lonzo. I just Ball. tried to cast her in White Men Can't Jump the musical. Yeah, couldn't you tell me that Lonzo Ball and J Lo could be in a movie next week that has rap elements, hip hop elements? Just a couple kids from different sides of the country, man. How about Big Baller from the Block? Boom. Yes. I I don't know. I like it. All right. I got one more thing uh, for Wide Open. Do you have anything else? No. I got, yeah. I, I'm really hung up on the idea of him pitching the perfect game now. That's what, that's new just not sports uh, vernacular. Like pitching the perfect game means you've never played a, <laughs> uh, never play a game in your life, but you're a famous athlete somehow. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like. Amazing. Ben Simmons is like he's he can, he's on the table. I mean, all he has to do is get hurt again. He's got a doc and put out like awesome content across multiple mediums. <laughs> right, right. Um, on the more serious side, got a notification from Facebook to wish my. Uh, friend and former colleague Maggie a happy birthday uh, to quote wish her well Uh, Maggie passed away last year of cancer and I was initially pretty pissed off it's just Facebook's algorithm doing its thing but then I thought you know what Uh, we should be remembering our friends who passed so Maggie Mahler Youngren was a colleague, a quasi-mentor of mine in this respect I worked my first Super Bowl with her the Pats Gareth, our first Super Bowl in the same city. Uh, 42. Pats, yeah, Pats, uh, Giants, number one. And we worked it together, and I want to tell a quick story about her. Uh, we were working with many, many athletes, celebrities that week, and Mia Hamm was coming in with her husband, Nomar. And Mia is notoriously difficult with um, media. Not from a, a Mia is a difficult person, but from Mia just doesn't like to do media. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw the nine, or, or the thirty for thirty, or maybe it was a nine for nine on the U.S. women's soccer team's ninety-nine run. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mia breaks down crying when she tries to recount to her team like the pressure she felt having to do every single interview, every single time, and be the face of the face of the of the movement of women's sports. I just it wasn't in her DNA. And so everyone, I love it, athletes as they age, just kind of owning that yeah. and just knowing what's good for them to do and not to do. Totally. And uh, Mia recognized that, um, or, or we, we, all sorry, all of our group clients, agency, everyone was very on much on pins and needles around her. And then you know, you know, oh, Mia doesn't like all the spotlight. Like just you know, be be chill. She walked in the room, 
she saw Maggie from across the room, recognized her from the work they'd done on Nike, and just like lit up like you can't huh. even imagine. What ran over to her, hugged her. They sat in a corner. They talked for like thirty minutes straight. Mia was amazing all day, and I don't say that to say that like it's not about Mia. It's just about the, to see a really famous athlete have a connection with a PR person when they hate doing PR. As far as hmm. I knew, I don't know if she does means that PR person was amazing at their job and amazing at life. And I just want to say, uh, as sad as I get seeing notifications from Maggie's passing, especially thinking about her two young kids and the husband she left behind, uh, everyone who was affected by her is better off for her. I'm better at my job and I'm better uh, in in many ways uh, for having known her and we wish her family nothing but the best and I'm just glad that uh, we got to know her uh, when we could. So, on that note, we're going to get to our interview right now. When we come back, though, Gareth and I are going to, on a more lighthearted note, break down NBA conspiracy theories. And we're going to find out if the truth is out. Line. There. There. Okay, yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Stay tuned. We'll be right back. So joining us now is Esquire Magazine writer at large, Luke O'Neill. Luke covers culture, columns, ideas, and a lot of Boston sports. So Luke, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, I'm going to start with, so we met years ago on a uh, New England Patriot cheerleader junket, oddly enough, uh, which I say... Not, um, well, I want to appreciate the full weirdness of that, number one. It was pretty weird. Yes, yeah, 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 at a, uh, at a resort in, I don't know, some Caribbean island, I forget at this point. But, I think it was the Dominican Republic. Okay, that story checks out, that's one of the ones we've been to. Um, but you've been doing a lot of coverage of uh, Boston sports for years, including interviewing uh, Tom Brady, the quarterback there of the New England Patriots. Uh, There's a lot of pictures of you from that shoot uh, online. But in the last month, uh, through your columns, we've seen a trip to the White House with the New England Patriots. Today, you published something on the Aaron Hernandez saga and him dying an innocent man in the eyes of the law. Um, and in the middle of that, and I don't, I don't know that you wrote about it, but there was the Adam Jones, Boston Red Sox controversy. Um, for the last decade, Boston has been the hub of the sports world from a success standpoint, but what the hell is going on up there from a controversy standpoint? Everything seems very heightened in the last few months. Well, it's interesting, and I think it kind of relates to the fact that, you know, why, like, writing for Esquire, why I get to do so many Boston-specific stories where it's a, you know, a national publication, and then there's there's Mm -hmm. just something about Boston sports that kind of makes everything that happens there uh, of interest to a national audience, and in part that's because the, the teams, the Patriots in particular, are, are so successful, 
but that also makes them, and then by extension, the city very hateable for, for people, you know, elsewhere throughout the country. And, and I sort of get that as someone who's, who grew up here and, and lives, you know, in the Boston area now, mm. um, the, the, the fans, the diehard fans, and I think you know this as well, there's they're certainly, a lot of them are exactly the, live up to the stereotype that people uh, sort of have for them. But yep. I, the, the thing is, everything has sort of had gasoline poured on it this year because of the very unfortunate, in my opinion, relationship between the Patriots and uh, the president. And so... Yep. What we've got is, you know, the the most hated man in America uh, is pals with the most hateable sports franchise in America, and, and that's that's certainly giving, you know, sort of forcing Boston sports stories to into places that you might not otherwise see them. I think. So you were at the White House earlier this month, or I guess it might have been April at this point, but. Um, Let's, I mean, let's be honest, that was a bizarre day in Patriots history. They're at the White House with Donald Trump on the day that Aaron Hernandez has hung himself in prison. What was, the, was, was anyone on the team, was, what was the feeling around the team around that? Was there just sort of, uh, did they ignore it? What was that like? Yeah, the team wasn't going to really uh, talk about it and, and, I don't remember what the, the language, I think there was something that came out through the team's PR that they weren't going to address it. And, you know, that's not exactly uncommon for them. They, they tend right. to clam up pretty easily. Um, but uh, I think that you couldn't help but sense that there was a sort of uh, cloud hanging over it. And I don't know. In part, it was it had to have been because of Hernandez. Because uh, you know, how do you not how do you not feel weird about that when you're when your former teammate who's taken this horrible turn into to murder and villainy? Is, is that aside, you still can't help but feel a little sad for for him killing himself. You know what I mean? That's, right. uh, I, I don't even I didn't know the guy. I didn't play with him every day, and even though I think he's a piece of shit, I, I was still it's it's sad that that this was what happened in this guy's life, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, I certainly didn't wish him dead. He belonged in jail for a very long time, but yeah, that sort of thing. You could, you could feel it hanging like sort of a cloud hanging over the team. And then, and then bring in the fact that there were so many players that didn't come, particularly Brady. Um, and it just made for like a really sort of soggy, disappointing event. Although it was, and, you know, Trump was, he was still himself. He, he managed to make, <laughs> you know, a lot of analogies about his victory and the Patriots come from behind. And one of my, I think my favorite part probably when he was, he was like reading off a list of accomplishments that, you know, from the Super Bowl, high tower sack and, and this and that. And one of the things, actually, no, he didn't, he didn't mention high tower because he wasn't there. Uh, but he did talk about, um, uh, Danny Amendola's big catch, and he's like, "Where's Danny? Come on forward, Danny!" And he wasn't there, and it was just like, <laughs> "Oh, <laughs> baby!" Yeah, he's just like stepping in it. Um, yeah. But no, it was strange, and I, I don't know. I'm glad, in a way, that a lot of them didn't go because you're you're a Patriots fan, right? 
yeah, yeah. And I, I will. I want to get into that. Like, what's your theory on the relationship? Like, I have thoughts on the relationship between the guys on that team and the president. And so, I'd love to hear yours. You know. Well, I find it absolutely infuriating. Um, I understand that you know Trump and and Bob Kraft and uh, Belichick and Brady have all been friends for you know a long time, long before mm-hmm. Trump entered the political realm, and so they seem to be sort of reluctant to to come in loose. I, it bothers me that they would be friends with a guy like that in the first place, but you know these people are. are are pretty terrible, uh, so they have to stick together. But they don't need. Kraft seems to be really sort of. Uh, I don't know. He, he's popped up a lot. He, he's down at Mar-a-Lago. He was on Air Force One. He's mm-hmm. been talking about how he, you know, he wants to help Trump in any way he can, and that's disappointing in a way. But then again, he is a billionaire, and you know, billionaires aren't real people. Um, and they're by their very nature, they they have to be evil in my opinion. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the Belichick, and then, and Belichick, I don't know. He sort of did the best job of it. I thought when the, when the whole thing with the letter, like as disappointing and surprising as that was, where you know when Trump read the letter from Belichick on the eve of the election, which by yeah. the way sounded exactly like it was written in Trump's voice, which was kind of weird. Um. But then Belichick, you know, he, he said, I'm not a political guy. Uh, you know, I had John Kerry in here, et cetera, et cetera. So in a way, he kind of distanced himself from the politics of it. But then the worst, the person who did the worst job of it, I think, was Brady. who 100% and, you know, that. And I wrote, uh, wrote a piece about this in the um, Washington Post uh, a couple of days before the Super Bowl. And I essentially called Brady a coward, and it was, you know, a hard thing for me to say because, uh, you know, I <clears throat> I feel the same way about Tom Brady as everyone who grew up in Massachusetts as a sports fan does, and it's really, really disappointing to me that he could not have at least made a the, the, the easiest thing in the world he could have done would have been, you know, Trump has been my friend for a long time. I don't disagree with a lot of the things he said, such as, you know, X, Y, Z, things about Mexicans or some of the things about women that he said. Like, that would not have hurt Brady in any way. That would not have cost him anything. And yet he couldn't bring himself to do it. And so mm-hmm. my, my my thinking now is, you know, Tom Brady, the person, I, I could, could not care less about him anymore. Uh, I still want him to uh, throw the football well, but... He is no longer a hero to me. Well, so let me, because you've profiled him, correct? Like you've sat down and talked to him. Yeah. And um, but they were for, but those were like fashion-driven stories for the magazine, so it wasn't exactly like hard-hitting, you know, political. Right. But well, what I guess what I want to ask is like, so. I honestly like Kraft and Trump's relationship, I think is personal and goes back a lot of ways. And it's, it's billionaire. Like a lot of this, I chalk up for all three of these guys. It's a rich guy stuff. And, and Belichick as much as anything had, it seemed like it had to do with legitimate media beef. And I think at this point, he's just going to write whatever letters he 
feels compelled to write and let the chips fall where where they may. Um, I like the guy a lot for having a don't give a fuck attitude across the board. Uh, so, but I agree with you on Brady. I just also his. I'm not trying to give him an out, but it felt like to me he put the hat up because this was golf buddy. And then the whole situation got fairly out of hand and he won the presidency. And then is Brady just a football robot at this point who is incapable of speaking about any topic other than football? Because when he was just like, I'm just a positive guy, I'm like, ah, you couldn't have picked a worse way out of that one, man. So. Yeah, it, I think that I, <clears throat> I do think that that's what, what it was. He probably wasn't thinking anything of it. He's like, "Oh, it's my pal," you know. Right. It's a funny hat, but I also realize he's almost a forty-year-old man who's a multi-millionaire, like a world celebrity, and he has millions and tens of millions of fans everywhere. And, and you, you can't, you know, he's not a boy. He may play a boy's game. Mm-hmm. He, you know, I'm, I'm not going to cut him. Uh, any more slack than I have to on that. And, uh, I mean, yeah, I, that's I, fair, I don't know. Fair. I don't know your, your politics at all. I, I assume that you're not a fan of Trump, but uh, I just really can't. Like, I, I think I think I'm ready to like disown my own mother for liking Trump. I, I, I'm not going to stick around with you know Brady, <laughs> a relative stranger who you live vicarious through through on a football field. I don't know. I might love Brady more than my mother, so. Yeah, hard, hard to tell. Uh, no, it's one of those things that, it, well, look, and this is, is another topic I wanted to discuss. Like, as you age and you get a little more hardened to the world and look at sports, like I, I, I mean, now I've grown fairly comfortable with the idea that there are no heroes. You know, like, can you believe this guy did drugs or? he's getting a divorce because he cheated on his wife. And at this point it's like, I'm more surprised when none of that happens, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So, um, right. And there's plenty of good guys in sports. I don't want to make everyone sound like a jerk, but just the stories are so legion that it's just sort of like, look, we're not children anymore collecting baseball cards. Like, I think we're all adults and we know what happens and that these are, the people that play sports and that like you write about are just flawed people like we are who are prone to make mistakes and just be careful where you hang your allegiance or idolatry. So. I mean, I, I, I actually just turned 40 myself uh, the other day. So I'm old enough to, to, I I should not be having sports heroes, but you know, Brady was the one that I sort of held on to, you know, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not naive. I know these just guys who are, are good at, you know, running and jumping and throwing the ball, and that doesn't mean that they're good at anything besides that. But mm-hmm. you know, if you follow sports your whole life, you still get a little bit of the romance of the of the sports hero left, and it doesn't you know die overnight just because you've gotten older. But I don't know. I think maybe this this was the one that the thing that kind of killed it for me. Was Yeah, yeah. But also, I do think, and you talked about this and we share this, I think Boston, as sort of a Petri dish, can grow. More, like, the, the fervor around sports in Boston is, um, 
I've, I've described it to people like I think Boston is the best sports city in America, which would also make it the worst sports city in America, where the 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 allegiance to teams and identity that people take from the success of those teams, especially in the last twenty years or so, um, can have a really unhealthy effect on the psyche of Bostonians. So. And that's, I think that's what we're getting into with the, uh, the Adam Jones thing and mm-hmm. with people conflating a, you know, a, a racist act at the, uh, at Fenway Park and, and being so unwilling to admit that it could happen because it must therefore mean something about them. So when, you know, when people say Boston is a racist city and there's, there's, you know, a lot of racist stuff goes on around our sports teams, people, uh, white people in particular can't say, well, yes, that, that does happen and that sucks and, and I wish it didn't happen and I'm going to, you know, personally do my best to not be a part of that. They, instead, they take it as an attack on Boston mm-hmm. or or one of the Boston sports teams as an attack on them personally. And and that was right. the the most annoying part of the whole Adam Jones thing because you had people... Instead of it, 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 like the fact that people were looking for, you know, like it was like the JFK assassination, like you know, <laughs> trying to break it down, like frame by frame. Where's the proof? It, like, is it that unbelievable that some guy in Family Park would use the N word? Uh, right. It's, it's not the most implausible thing in the world. Well, we know the owner did it <laughs> at some point. The old owner has done it. We named a street after him. So Right, right. He was, Yaki uh, wasn't the, the most forward-thinking guy uh, racially. But, uh, but yeah, that's the thing about the identity is, is that, you know, I can't admit that there's, there's a problem here because what does that say about me? Um, and, you know, I, I mean, there's some legitimacy to saying that you you can't throw you know a whole city under the bus for the actions of a few, few people but there's really just been a few people you know there's almost there's a lot of uh troubled racial history in boston and it's still a very segregated place mm-hmm. and uh it just really bothered me that people were were especially you know on sports talk radio where you know you admittedly isn't a place where you're going to uh, go for the most uh, philosophical discourse, but just, you know, just refusing to, like the fact that, the fact that people were even asking for proof, like why, it's not something you need proof for. You, you have a, a black man saying he experienced racism and your first instinct is to ask him for proof. I think that right there is the proof itself. Right. Uh, also, and the, the team just came out and said, they apologized and said this happened. You know, so like, like the the proof thing is ridiculous. But also, when the team says, "Oh yes, this happened," we're apologizing. Like, take that as proof, guys. Like, this is this should be over at this point. So, seemed pretty cut and dry uh, yep. story to me. But I don't know people. But like you said, people uh, people kind of go crazy with their <clears throat> sports. Conflating their their sports fandom with their identity. There, are, uh, there are too many things I want to get into on this. So, in the purposes of keeping this interview to something close to time, I want to say, like you just said, in regards to fandom, um, 
just sort of like where the personal and professional meet. And so what I want to ask you about in, in digging into your columns for the last month, you have, a, because of the luck of where you live and where you're from and this moment in time with Boston sports, you have a unique luxury to write about these Boston sports stories that become national. And you can also write a column on turning 40 or um, I believe it was a piece in Slate last year about the death of your father. Uh, so you're in a really unique place to balance being, I don't know, like a national columnist along with a in a personal essayist. And they all work together. How have you sort of come across that voice? Well, I think part of that, and, and I do uh, recognize that I'm pretty lucky to be able to do that. Like, you know, I... I never really was a, a sports writer, uh, but like we talked about at the beginning. Well, or were you a political writer? Well, I, I mean, traditionally, for most of my twenties, I was I was a music writer. But, but then, as a you know, I, as I branched out uh, from you know, local stuff here, from the Globe and the Boston Phoenix and things like that, you just sort of have to buy necessity when you try to make a living as a freelancer. Uh, you sort of have to be able to do anything. So. Mm -hmm. If somebody comes to you and says, hey, can you write about this? You say, yep, yes, I can. And whether or not you know <laughs> what you're doing, and you figure out how to do it, you know. And um, I, I think, you know, this is probably similar to, you know, in the type of stuff, the, the film and, and photography and TV world, where, where someone comes with a gig and you take the gig, even if it's, you know, not, not something necessarily that, that you would have imagined yourself doing. And then over yep. time, you, you know, you... Uh, you just you figure out which ones are the you're like oh actually I'm, I'm pretty good at this I can write about this um, and for a long time I start I was writing about bars and alcohol and you know beer and stuff like that which you know, it seems like it would be someone asking me if I wanted to do that like a few years ago I was like yep I definitely want to write and go to lots of bars and try them out and and even though I didn't really know what I was talking about at the time uh, so I guess you know over time I just after years and years of, of, of trying so many different things, you, you kind of expand your you kind of uh, expand your palette a little bit for for the types of things you can cover. And I, don't know, I feel I feel pretty lucky to have, have had the opportunity, even though you know, as we were joking at the beginning, the, the, the working from home uh, freelance reporter life isn't always uh, the most glamorous one, but right. it can be sometimes. Amen. No, no, I like what you said. Like the in my world, the analogy is perfect. It because I was talking to someone recently. Like I don't follow sports like I used to. I don't enjoy them. Like I've got two kids and things like that. It's like at this point, I know how to cover sports. Like I don't like go do a piece on this guy. Okay, I got it. I know what questions to ask. I know what articles to read for research. I know who to talk to to get the background and go. So. But I, I, I'll give you credit, and this is not to blow smoke up your ass, but you've got an I encourage everyone to go read Luke on Esquire and the writer at large page. In his page, we'll post a link. But like, there's a, a good, interesting balance of just comedic observational stuff or a deep dive on politics or sports or a personal essay. And that's rad. So, all right. Now, before we go, last thing. Um, you are also in, you are in emo acolyte you you ride hard for emo music no i do i do and i run the um for 
it's almost like two and a half years now I've been doing the emo night Boston night here uh, we have the Sinclair once a month and uh, yeah it's a lot of fun and it, you know I've been into that type of music since I was a teenager I think I discovered mm-hmm. it in college with like the get up kids and promise ring and stuff like that and you know I've always sort of followed it and I've been in bands myself and stuff but uh, you know, a few years ago, there a lot of younger bands, you know, started mm-hmm. playing music that was influenced by that stuff, and, and people started to notice that it was sort of a, a revival, although that's become a controversial thing amongst emo circles. But, um, but yeah, and it's, it's, it's really is like there are so many dozens of bands right now playing music that's, you know, kind of born out of that late 90s early 2000s stuff and just mm-hmm. a super exciting time um and the thing about it for me is it's like there's a lot of these emo nights around now and they're all sort of couched as this like nostalgia based thing but for me it's it's more of a like our night is more of like a celebration of all this new music and, and the kids that come out they, they sing along and get super stoked about all the new bands and that's just really exciting for me i, I don't know it's a lot of fun the next one's May 25th at the Sinclair, so uh, I'll come down and, and shout along with us. If you can DJ and play songs that aren't radio hits and get people going along, that's the greatest feeling. And that is that is when you're killing it. So It really is. And, and about, admittedly, every now and again, towards the end of the night, if I get a little drunk, I just say fucking start playing all the, all the favorites that everyone wants to hear. But yeah. that's, the, that's what it is. Any DJ who eventually gives in, I suppose. <laughs> Don't stop till you get enough. Exactly. Uh, your band is No Hope, No Harm, correct? That's right. All right. So I listened to them, and then I went through some of your playlists. To your point, I look my my musical taste of that era sort of stopped with the. Um, I think the closest I got to emo was Modest Mouse, Built to Spill, um, and, and Modest Mouse might cross over into that world. Uh, a little bit. Yeah, especially their early stuff. Yeah, uh, that that was that was important to me. They meant a lot to me. That band. Um, but as I was going through your playlist, I have to ask you. This is my last thing, Luke. There are a lot of sports names for emo bands. I can I, football, etc. Sports, just sports. Dikembe, Little Big League. Free throw, yellow card, American baseball. I might be missing some others, but no, modern baseball. Oh, modern baseball. So American football. I, I, what the hell is up with that, man? I think it's probably like a, a you know ironic thing, like sort of juxtaposing something that's traditionally so you know stereotypically masculine with something that bands that are, are very sensitive and something about their feelings i think it's just an irony that's too hard to pass up yep all right so it's modern baseball and then american football that's where i swap those oh wait there's all different variations of this there really is a lot so who knows there could be both of those by now well excellent luke thank you so much for joining us everyone you can read luke on esquire follow him on instagram follow his band no hope no harm uh Follow his playlists. I was learning a lot about emo music today. It did not die with Dashboard Confessional. So Great. Thanks, man. Nice talking to you.
The NBA draft is coming up, and it's one of the more remarkable moments in sports media each year. Not because of who gets drafted or who gets a first pick, but because we get to run back all that wonderful tape of the alleged NBA draft conspiracy theories and let fan bases across the United States yell about how awful David Stern screwed them over. This has been a long-standing tradition in the NBA, and in all sports, really, but the NBA most especially. And we thought it, you know, prudent, proper, uh, important to break down some of our favorite NBA conspiracy theories and ask the eternal question, do you believe? First of all, Gareth, do you get that reference? Are you an X-Files fan? Yes, I do. I do. Did you watch the X-Files? Uh, I watched some of it in its first run, not enough to really get into the show, but I actually watched the last six episodes when they were on. So, uh, Does watching the Simpsons spoof of it count? Oh, that I know like the back of my hand. <laughs> yeah, I do not. I did not get into the X-Files. It's one of the few 90s uh, mega trends that I ignored. Let me ask you this before we get into the NBA. What is the weirdest, most outlandish conspiracy theory you actually believe? Well, I definitely believe Jordan was asked to go get away from the NBA for a year and a half. Okay, hold that, <laughs> please. Outside sports, we'll get well, no, sports? meaning we'll get to that because we've we have to. That's that's the okay. most famous. But like, what outside of sports is the most out? Like, do you believe UFOs have landed here or no, things like that? I don't. But what what would you say? Um, let me think. Like, do you believe Sirhan Sirhan, who killed RFK, was MK Ultra? <laughs> I had not heard that conspiracy theory. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I, if I'm going to buy any of them, it's Kennedy, and that the government or CIA had something to do with that. Yeah, I read a book a few years ago that literally just at the end of it named people they said killed Kennedy. It was crazy. It was like a CIA splinter cell that had gone rogue and just like who they went say, crazy. What they say happened. They said that it was, um, and it was like a very serious, it's called Brothers, and it's a very serious look at like the dynamic between RFK and JFK. Mm-hmm. And at the end, they're like, by the way, these three dudes killed Kennedy. I mean, it's like thrown, it's like tacked on. It's It'd be like, like at the end of it's like, like when Boogaloo goes up to Tupac's character at the end of Above <laughs> yeah. the Rim and just like shoots him in an epilogue. Yeah, or it'd be like this. It'd be like, hey, um, any more distractions this week? Yeah, <laughs> I killed Kennedy. You know, like, I mean, it's just like All crazy. Right, stay booty. They said that like there were all these CIA splinter cells that had been empowered to deal with anti-communist efforts, anti-whatever efforts, mm-hmm. uh, anti-liberalism, and that the CIA had essentially lost track of them. So when Kennedy was softening his stance um, on Cuba and communism in general, uh, that a, a small splinter group tried to murder him in three cities, Miami first, Chicago mm-hmm. second, and then they got... They actually got the situation they needed in Dallas and took care of it. Having been to Dallas, I could absolutely see how it could have worked. Mm-hmm. It's impossible to say, but it does. It wouldn't shock me if they were like, "Yeah, we found definitive proof that like he's been killed by other people." But that's not. I mean, I was thinking like conspiracies. Like, do, again, do you think like Area Fifty One has aliens? I don't. Do what you go? You, no, you go. No, the quiz is better. Well, I'm trying to think of them now. Like. What are the other crazy conspiracies? Well, 9-11, I don't buy any of. Like, 
I don't know. The one I believe is that there was a desk in the White House that has a treasure map to Lincoln's gold. Oh, that was National Treasure too. Book <laughs> right, of Secrets. Right, right, right. <laughs> I thought you were like, there's a desk in the White House with a button, and anytime you press it, you get a Coca-Cola. Well, I mean, and conspiracy theories tell you more about you than they do the actual yeah, thing. Absolutely. <laughs> most likely. I don't really believe... I don't really believe too many... The other thing we've done is we've applied conspiracy theories to so many random things, like, did Donald Trump collude with Russia? I mean... Who know? I mean, that's only like an email away. Like, it's right. not a conspiracy theory to me. Is um, was there a global? Was there a global uh, quagmire? You know, created and then and then uh, uh, covered up by institutions. Like that's that's what I think is interesting. And I I just I don't get into this whole like oh. Uh, this was a false flag. I don't believe in any, like 9-11 yep. was a false flag. All that stuff seems like garbage to me. Uh, the the ones that catch my attention are more like long-standing. Yeah, or just like relationship-based because that's how you can picture them. This, the Kennedy one seems more believable because it's like, yeah, it's deep-seated inter, inner office politics and, you know, they've fucked up and lost track of these people. So now... This is what happens. Like I can parse that. Yeah, I forget what I was looking at recently. I was I went like super deep on something online, and I was like, "Man, this is like a total crazy conspiracy." I, I like the more outrageous ones, like the fact that like John Benet Ramsey's mom was like an MK Ultra like fueled spy who may or may not have killed her her daughter without her knowledge. Like I find that stuff funny. And interesting. I do not know that one. Yeah, you should not go down that rabbit hole of Jean Benet Ramsey news <laughs> like I have in the past you've, year. You've mentioned the distraction a couple of times. Dan Pribble was always good for the best deep dives on a Wikipedia category. Well, speaking of deep dives, let's talk NBA. I'm going to throw some at you. Let's talk about whether we believe them or not. We'll start here. 1985 draft lottery to set it up for the Joe Reeds of the audience, the youngins Patrick Ewing was even I mean well uh, Jordan was already in the league but Ewing was like I think seen as a far better potential prospect given the dominance big men had had in the NBA to that point he was the number one pick back then it was the very first draft lottery they they announced it was going to be a draft lottery that year which made it suspicious enough because I but not really because they wanted teams not to tank all year and lose every game to get Ewing, and then they had like a rotating machine that, uh, like an you know I don't even know like a pop old school popcorn yeah, 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 maker yeah, yeah. that had envelopes in it, and David Stern, young David Stern, brown hair, mustache, <laughs> looking real creepy. Uh, he looks like one of those accountants that like fucked up the Oscars. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so he reaches in and without looking pulls out an envelope, and that envelope just happens to be the Knicks. Long rumored that this was rigged to be to ensure that Ewing went to a primary market and not to the Sacramento's of the world. Gareth, do you believe? I believe. I believe this conspiracy a hundred percent. It was the rumor was the envelope was stuck in a freezer, so when he reached in, he would know to grab the the cold envelope. I don't believe this one. Really. Have you watched the Zapruder film of this? I have not broken it down. Okay. This is just not sports, so you know, you can trust that I have. That Brad has gone deep. He doesn't mull around the... There's two things with this that are problematic. 
One, a cold envelope and a batch of other envelopes will inevitably make other things colder. Especially in a metal tumbler. So unless they were put in like that second, it's you're, you're gonna it's gonna be hard to pick out like what's coldest. Mm-hmm. He doesn't rummage around in the pile for very long. Okay. So the only way this could have worked would be he it was just it happened. <laughs> yeah. It was on a 45 the forty five second comedy. Of but him. he could not have rigged that that th- the only way you could have rigged that that thing was on the was was in a certain spot would be to wait it but it's mm-hmm. on the top right so like you could couldn't have waited it i just in my heart of hearts i i don't believe it would have been as easy as advertised to reach in blind and grab a wet cold envelope and a stack of other potentially getting wet getting cold envelopes and without rummaging around for right. a minute looking for it i just don't think it's possible I definitely think maybe they tried. Maybe they got lucky. <laughs> but I don't know. The only, the only thing I thought about was, like, are all, were all the envelopes the Knicks? Right. But right. I, they, they did open up the other two, didn't they? Afterwards. Uh, they, yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. But please, give me your counter. No, no. I, I be- uh, Look, I believe it. Well, I think you put it best. I bet they tried, but... It was a bonus if it works right. that well, because but getting him to New York was almost too good. My uh, I talked to someone once who believed that um, he believed in the NFL conspiracy theory that post Katrina, the league told the Texans to draft Mario Williams first so that Reggie Bush would go to the Saints and help revitalize the team in the city. I don't believe that at all. OK, the NFL has like. The most red-ass old ownership group ever. And what guy's going to be like, sure, Roger, I'll draft this player instead of this other player? I mean, it's just not something you would think about, right? It was a good story at the time. Also, Reggie Bush, like a running back, is not going to like just oh, but change your team. He was huge coming out of USC. I guess, but he was also undersized, and he was like an Think of the of star that- power in that draft. Yeah. Reggie Bush, Matt Leiner, <laughs> Vince Young. <laughs> Yeah, we'll we'll get to more New Orleans related conspiracies. Okay, Michael Jordan's gambling, leading to his suspension. Do you believe? I believe, and rumor has it the NBA is doing a six-hour OJ style MJ bio coming out in a few years. And I, I was saying to someone, I was like, if they don't answer that, how? Can I be interested? Like, the footage will be great. It'll be cool to see all that stuff again. But I, uh, I hate to say it. Like, I'm someone who defends Lonzo Ball's rap, but I don't get into this. I don't believe that one either. Really? Here's my take on I that. I do believe in that one. Okay. Here's my take on the MJ situation. It's, it's multi-pronged. So, listeners, get comfortable. <laughs> I think, I really do think that MJ and 93, we can't take it out of the context of the time. And there's important contextual arguments to be made for him just wanting to leave after three straight championships. One, he was exhausted. Mm -hmm. Two, he, in many interviews after that, he kept saying things like Magic and, and, and Larry can't say they won three. He probably didn't think he could get to five or six and beat magic. Mm-hmm. But he knew he had a three peat and he could just say, I 
I did, did that. it and I left on top. Yep. So I, I do believe it. And I also think if you want if you want proof of how that might have informed his worldview, look at the footage of the Pistons walking off the court in shame in front of him in Detroit and look at his face and he gives this kind of like, mm, like I can't believe they're doing this. I just think Michael Jordan didn't want to experience losing from coming back down. Right. And right. I, it doesn't shock me that he – and, again, there was the death of his father, which was incredibly emotional. Three straight well, that finals. Is the conspiracy the Olympics. theory. Okay, we'll get to that in a second. The other, th- the other reason I don't believe this is because that was the era of the two-sports star. Dion. Bo. Bo. Brian Jordan. Other mm. dudes doing that thing. Yeah. And I think Jordan was looking at it and saying, I bet this is going to be the new norm. And I think that if I could go make the pros in baseball, that I would beat them all because I'm the best basketball player ever, and I was an okay baseball player. And he probably believed he could be a great baseball player. Right. And I I really do believe that that influenced his mindset from a mark. I want to be the ultimate marketing icon because Bo for a while had surpassed him. Dion was close. People forget Jordan didn't become Jordan Jordan until the second three-peat when they <laughs> right. became like... Which, as you describe it, is insane. Like yeah. He came back I mean, and three-peated again. He was, like a, he was like Tom Brady now. He was a famous athlete we all knew, but when he came back, he was like the Beatles. Yeah, no, he was... I, I've heard it said that for a while he was... You know, they, I always find it interesting when people are like, who are the top three most people famous people in the world at that moment like muhammad ali was that for a long time like yeah. bob marley was that nelson mandela the Beatles were that nelson mandela like michael jordan and lavar ball yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> if there's any justice um uh he entered into that world where it was like michael jackson like going to thailand was difficult yeah i um yeah, I, I don't know. I, I just I, I really do think he just wanted to be more famous and thought that was like a better road than like grinding it out. But w- give me the give me the argument you think. Well, I find it. Look, he was known. He was very public about the gambling stuff. I mean, like everybody knew that was going on. And then his father gets killed. Um, I 100 percent believe that was related to gambling. OK, but if you had gambling debts, why would you quit your job? Well, but that's where I don't think he quit it. I think it, it was forced upon him. I think it was, this needs to cool off for a while. You need to step away from the NBA. And he's a psycho competitor in his athletic prime. And he needs to find something to do so he goes to play baseball. My my only counter to that is that global companies cannot keep shit secret. And I know, because I'm one of those people that's <laughs> supposed to. And it's impossible. And I just, if anyone... The only way this holds up is if David Stern went and did the did the muckraking and found the evidence and was like, Jordan, I'm the only one who knows. Take two years off. If any other person did that and found the evidence and brought it to Stern, that person would have stood to gain enormous LeVar Ball-style <laughs> attention whoring from selling that story. That's what keeps me from believing this because I think they would have been like, nah, man, I'm going to go get my $30 million for like this book deal and right. whatever else. What do you think? Like, Was he that exhausted after the first three, Pete? I mean, 
Probably. I, again, it was a different time, and he'd been – people didn't play basketball for 20 years back then. Right, right. I mean, Larry Bird was, like, dead after 12 or 13 seasons. Yeah, Magic but- was barely holding on. Isaiah was dead after, you know, 10 to 12. I think Michael just thought, I can go out on top. I don't have to have that slow decline where I get yeah, beat yeah. by, you know, the Knicks or whatever. Where I don't end up on the Wizards. Yeah, and they'd have they'd have they'd had tough series. I I I just think the the MJ argument to me makes a lot more sense when you put it into a a a, a context of of what he faced at the time. Mm-hmm. But it certainly look I, you can't discount it. I just I don't believe like what what lawyer sat in that room and and negotiated a a, a two year ban and wrote it on paper and then like didn't like turn around well, in 10 years and sell it. This is the problem with all conspiracy theories is that right. you start to factor in that nobody can keep secrets. It's not just global companies or brands or right. anything like that. And eventually they would come out because of human incompetence. Okay. Let's talk about the post Michael Jordan refereeing situation. I'll give you three examples. 1999 Indiana versus New York, Larry Johnson's, Four-point Four play <laughs> continuation, Gareth, yeah, yeah, continuation. Yeah. 2001 East Finals, Bucks versus um, Philadelphia. Philadelphia getting like 40 free throws to the <laughs> Milwaukee 11 or something like that. Yep. And then 2002, probably most notoriously, the Western Conference Finals, LA versus Sacramento. Yeah, Same yeah, situation, yeah. bad free throws, whatever. Do you believe the post-MJ refs had been instructed to favor big market teams. And remember, 99, the year after MJ, was a lockout and ratings were way down, also followed by a San Antonio dynasty. Well, I don't believe that for the same reason that all these conspiracies fall apart because it depends on a directive going out to, I don't know, what, 60 referees, 100 referees, and all of them keeping a secret. That's... Not believable to me. Hot take. I do believe this one. Here's my <laughs> deal. I think it was they had a handful of lead refs who were stern guys yeah. who went in there and, oh, game six in L.A., Sacramento dominating. Wink, go go call the game rough. Right. You know, go call the game loose. Like, And I think – the one thing about this one that you that you you just said a minute ago, like where's the where's the smoking gun? Tim Donahue, <laughs> the ref who had gambling ties, who has written several columns on Deadspin, who said when we want the series to be extended, we bring in this guy. Now, yeah. do you take the convict's word as gospel? I don't know, I but it's 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 it's. Not as off the table in my head as others. But you're, how many guys, before it starts to fall apart, how many people can you let into a conspiracy theory? Two. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how many are like 60-year-old refs though, for the NBA? Like, if, that, if that's the case, maybe maybe there's four. Maybe there's five. <laughs> right, right. I mean, you know... You can you can let in a few. I, you just there's they just need gotta to be... be an internet theory name for that. Like it's like uh, Donahue's theory, the point at which a conspiracy theory starts to collapse. You know, right, right. And I look, I just think those were, and, and the NBA has games like this where teams, home teams, get the calls or whatever. But 
I, it wouldn't shock me if they had said, look, we have a business crisis, which is what do we do after MJ? After the Beatles. Yeah, yeah. Like, what do we do? And and they looked up and they saw – they didn't see the Rolling Stones. They saw Indiana, San Antonio, Milwaukee. <laughs> they saw the disco era, man. Yeah. And it was just like, you know, do do we do this? I don't know. I, the, 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 the thing that actually makes that fall apart in my head is that L.A. was – became a transcendent franchise and i'm not sure they needed to keep you know propping that up on stilts uh, yeah. you know i was like star, will help that. stars get calls i mean that's i mean there was no bigger star in 1999 than larry johnson grandma <laughs> 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 all right that's a that's a uh i've liked tonight's show because even when it's gotten into sports there's always been a marketing tie <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> and like grandma was grandma amazing Ma was huge put converse on the map in a lot of ways he, I mean, like, did it though? <laughs> <laughs> they had did a minute. It. I mean, did it put Charlotte it? Hornets starter jackets on the map? Because like, definitely did that. That was my jam. I saw one of those in my neighborhood a year ago and texted a picture to a friend. It was like, whoa. We should do a whole show on starter jackets we owned and wanted. What did you? I remember. Do you, you might remember seventh grade? I got um, a Michigan knockoff starter jacket. And I remember being like, I'm cold. I'm going to go get it out of my locker. And I like, brought it into the class. <laughs> and I was just like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> Getting some looks. I got a Celtics one because I dug. Uh, Racism? Your... <laughs> 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 Thank you. Well, we did get into that with Luke O'Neill. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no. I, don't, I, it just, like, I had a, a Michigan one, even though I lived in Ohio. Brandon Valade had a Raiders, which I was super jealous of. Mm. It was a fucking awesome jersey or awesome starter jacket. But the Hornets gear was everywhere. Yes, it was. Man. Because of Grandmama. And because the Hornets, they had teal. There was also the, the teal revolution going on right there. Teal and purple revolution. Yeah. The, 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 the forerunners of that were the, the Sharks, were the ones who did the study. Yep. That kids like black, uh, men like white, moms like teal. And so they, really? that's yeah, where that came from? Uh, something along those lines. And they were like, okay, fine. What is, <laughs> this is our uniform color. And then when, and then if you remember, it was the Hornets blew up with yep. their color scheme. And then it was, the Jags came in. no, uh, no, before it was Marlins no. and Rockies, one teal, one purple, and then became the hellscape that was the <laughs> 90s uniforms so bad that I wrote a letter to Keith Oberman at ESPN and Sports <laughs> Illustrated. Neither one published. And uh, uh, just chastising. I, I remember the, the, the one specific line was, what part of the grizzly bear is mint green? <laughs> uh, okay, a couple more. Let's talk about the draft conspiracies. The three that come to mind the most, and I, I've read some articles on like Bleacher Report and other things that are like NBA's most crazy conspiracies. They're yeah. like, the 2008 lottery where Derrick Rose was selected by the Bulls over the Heat. And I'm like, that is not doing it for me. <laughs> that is a deep cut on the conspiracies line. The three that pop into my head are the Penny Draft, Orlando Magic, after drafting Shaq, have one ping pong ball in the, thing, in the holster, and it comes up their number, and they get to choose between Weber... Sean Bradley, NBA legend Sean Bradley. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, can I? Can we do? Can we do hammers on this show to each other? Yeah. Gareth, you need to get Sean Bradley on the show. <laughs> That's a good one. All right. I mean, dude, you work with TNT. Figure it out. <laughs> uh, do you believe P 
Penny was a conspiracy. No, I'm I'm not. That I don't either because this. that was the that was the scale that got tipped to not do the ping pong balls anymore. Mm-hmm. So I just think that was chance. The two that are really tough are the Le- the, the, the the LeBron, LeBron decision draft. Okay, the LeBron to Cleveland draft could have been rigged, um, but I kind of feel like they would have they would have put LeBron anywhere. You know what I mean? Like it didn't right. it didn't matter. Was this their test to see if one transcendent talent could carry any market? Well, I mean, I mean the hometown connection is like undeniable. I mean, it's all the greatest what if is like what if LeBron had been taken by Memphis. There's no like I'm coming home, you know. Right, like he right. would have maybe the rumor his whole career would have been he's going back to Cleveland. Mm-hmm. You know, he's going to go he's going to go back to Ohio. I, the, the the draft lottery that seems to me to be more conspiracy led would be after he left the Cavs got like three of four. Oh yeah yeah yeah, but they and, got the and, year and after the decision. They legendary got the, Anthony Bennett was in those. You know yeah yeah. I I that one and then the other one is the Anthony Davis draft where the NBA owned Hornets won the lottery right. after nixing the the. Uh, Chris Paul trade. <laughs> I do believe that was rigged because I do believe the NBA as the owners of the team, and maybe my facts are wrong, they didn't own it anymore. I think what they needed to do for potential sellers when they were marketing the team was to be able to say, you have a transcendent talent in Anthony Davis mm-hmm. in the first pick of the draft by this franchise. I believe yeah. that 100%. And David Stern could march in here right now with the people who killed Jordan's dad, and I still would say no. <laughs> uh, that one I had never considered or never given a lot of thought to, which shows the depth of my NBA falling in that time. But, yeah, that sounds entirely believable because you know what that takes out of the equation? It is the 30-something uh, owners who are saying, uh, no, I don't have to help you because they're all helping themselves because they yeah. all get a cut of that money. Yeah. So they're instantly paid off. Fair. Fair. All right. Any final final thoughts on NBA conspiracies? Well, I'm going to throw it at you. The The moon landing was directed by Kubrick. And <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's a, did we go to the moon? We definitely went to the moon, but did, I don't believe that. But did Spike Lee direct the end of the Reggie Miller game? And it was all a conspiracy. <laughs> no. <laughs> Required him hitting shots. <laughs> right. Uh, do you believe we went to the moon? I do believe we went to the moon. Mm, I'm like 70-30 believe on that. Would it shock you if, if Japan went to the moon? They were like, we didn't find anything here. Then we just packed it up and didn't do it? Yeah, or like we or like we, we sent a probe up there, but like we couldn't land people. And, the footage, and again, the footage you saw was incorrect. Well, the footage you saw was from a soundstage. Yeah, so. right, right, right. What's funny to think about with that is like, what's the moon look like? Like that. Like it just, that's what the moon looks like to us, whether we did or didn't. Like, let me blow your mind. Like, what do the planets look like? You've never seen them. <laughs> right, that's a fair point. Like, I'm not is, a big telescope guy. Is NASA a hoax and Trump is just finally like pulling back the curtain? Oh, of this man, we gotta start, we're getting pretty Alex Jonesy up in here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know. 
<laughs> Fuck that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. With that, on that note. And on that note, we'll be back in one second with our distractions and shoutouts. Stick around. Okay, in the sports world, unless you are LeVar Ball and you have something cool to say, you get crushed by the sports media. If you are LeVar Ball, you get onto first take commercials. Right now, we are going to celebrate all the things athletes do that distract them from work by sharing with you some of the distractions we do away from work. And I'm going to start, Gareth. Okay. I have two. New podcast called Summer Blockbuster, hosted by friend of pod Steve Warner, my old compatriot. Uh, it's a really cool premise. Uh, some really knowledgeable film fans talk about the movies that came out in the summer that had no business being released in the summer. Huh. So kind of like UHF when it when Weird Weird Al talks about, yeah, we went up against. Batman, uh, <laughs> Last Crusade, and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and uh, we got creamed. Their, their Neil first Brennan always jokes about that, that uh, Half-Baked was the only movie to come out against Titanic. Right, right. And, you know, uh, they they kind of like go deep on uh, some of those movies. Their first episode went out last week. It was on Marcy X, which was Lisa Kudrow and Damon <laughs> Wayans in a white woman rapping movie Oof. made in 2003 or made in 01, released in 03. What uh, did it open against? I don't remember off the top of my head, but like not, you know, I mean, I'm sure probably like the Matrix <laughs> sequels. <laughs> uh, but, you know, just funny stuff. They're friends of the show. They're just getting started. Go give them a, uh, you know, go give them a try and, and, um, Give him a rating on iTunes. Also, tonight at the Digiday Awards, I met some really great dudes who I sat next to at our table. And one of them has a website that is Cats versus Cancer. Have you heard about this? No. So they realized that, like, hey, people like cats videos and they like like combating cancer. So let's do something where we're going to create funny, cool cat videos and we're going to sell advertising on it. And then every time or every time like you watch and it triggers advertising, all that money goes to a new cancer oh. charity, and they rotate charities every month. It's awesome. Uh, awesome idea, Cats versus Cancer. I would encourage everyone to go check it out. Also, I'm going to the beach next week. These guys should be running the show. I would say I picked up uh, two books, Gareth. One is uh, Salem's Lot. Ooh, continuing going, my Stephen King. Yeah, yeah. Now I have never read Salem's Lot, so I'm I'm going into this one cold. But it's one of the few like I would say, like, I I want to use Shakespearean like big tragedy, like big four tragedies or whatever. Like it's one of his seminal works that I have not read. Yeah. Um. And then I also got a book called Men, Women, and Chainsaws, which is a really hardcore uh, analysis of gender in horror films. <laughs> That's awesome. Shout out to. The New Flesh Podcast for recommending that. Okay, those are my distractions. Gareth, what's up? My distraction this week is I'm very on trend here with the preschool or with the uh, elementary school set. I'm flicking a fidget spinner as we sit here. So went to a kid's birthday party on Sunday and we left and they had little gift goodie bags and there were one of these in every one of them. And the other parents were like freaking out because these <laughs> things are like hard to find. Yeah. So... Who did you blow to get this one? Well, so the fidget spinner, it's one of those things that, like, my daughter came running home with it. She was like, Daddy, we got you this. 
and I had no idea what it was, and I'm sure you've all seen it by now. It's this uh, little thing that you flick in your hands. It's a good stress relief, things like that. So they got me this plastic one because I always keep a worry stone in my fifth pocket uh, to run my fingers over. And so then after I had a plastic one for a couple of days, my wife was like, I found you something nice. And it's this metal fidget spinner that looks kind of like a ship's wheel. It has a beautiful weight to it. And I am I'm pretty into it. I'm feeling like Furious Styles with his meditation balls and Boys in the Hood. Uh, if I could make you choose for life, fidget spinner or uh, toothpick, what would you choose? Probably toothpick. Okay. What about seltzer water or fidget spinner? So I was thinking on my walk over here, like, distraction. Like, you're here in New York at one of the best times of year. New York in the springtime is, I don't know, the most beautiful city in the world, and I will broker no argument. The garbage smells like perfume. The garbage <laughs> and, and the pollen rains down on you like a rain. Cities built 100 years later had alleys. Very useful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, as I was walking over here, I stopped for a hot dog on the corner. And I was like, man, New York City is the greatest city in the world. I can get a seltzer on any block. Why would anyone want to live anywhere else? So seltzer I would pick over the toothpick and the fidget spinner. Hashtag Team Chicago, but cool, you like New York, <laughs> and you like spinners. <laughs> All right, that's our show for this week. Gareth, who do you want to sh- give some shout-outs to? Shout-out to Jim Rickoff. Jim Rickoff was one of my mentors, and he will, as of uh, a couple weeks back, he was announced as the new lead producer for all NFL games on CBS. He awesome. was a mentor to me. Uh, he's given me a lot of great life advice. He's very quotable. To this day, whenever I screw something up, and with him in mind, I'll just, well, I am not a bright man. <laughs> so, uh, congratulations to Jim Rickoff. The, they promoted a great guy, and I'm sure the shows are going to be awesome. And I'm going to give it a shot. You ready? Or we'll trade back and forth. I'm going to give a shout out to my boy Uzi. Def Jeff. Little Swanee. Meech. Ron Mack. My other cousin, Ron. Did we figure out someone? It was close, though. Wait. Okay. Swan. I want to give a shout-out to uh, my boy Uzi. Def Jeff. Little Swanee. Meech. Ron Mack. Yeah, and my other cousin, Ron. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we did We did you justice, Adam, <laughs> and the fam. Uh, and the immortal words of Shaquille O'Neal. Booty, Booty rappers. rappers. Stay booty. Stay booty. Everybody.